Well, this morning I want to talk to you about something uh, I call potluck, the potluck syndrome, or, or maybe I should say buffet, the buffet syndrome. Anybody ever been to a good buffet? I mean, we have some good buffets around here. Uh, typically, in most buffets, you pay a certain price, you go in, and it's all you can eat, and eat, and eat. And I don't know what buffets you frequent. <clears throat> the ones I go to, I walk in, I can't help but recognize that there's some professional eaters there. <laughs> They're not messing around. They came early, they don't have any appointments. We're gonna get our money's worth. But I don't know if you've also noticed when people go through a buffet, I've never yet seen somebody that takes one of everything, have you? No, what do you do? That's the joy of the buffet, right? You get to pick and choose. I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and maybe a little bit, ooh, I don't want that. Let's just go around here. I don't even know why that's here. Let's go, okay, some of this, some of this, right? And then you come back, you just leave your plate. This isn't really a good restaurant to help your kids learn about manners, right? Oh, just leave it. Go back. We're here to eat. And you come back and it's gone. You get a fresh plate. And then finally for dessert, when you're just kind of rolling over there and you go, and you're like, yeah, let's put a little sprinkles and a dab of this and this and this. And you leave the buffet just kind of, ugh. Pick and choose. Why am I talking about buffets? Well, because I think there's a phenomenon in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it's probably across other denominations as well where people that are born into the church, raised in the church, can very easily become cultural Adventists, and by that I mean they like to pick and choose. And they're here because they like being here, this is what they know, this is what feels comfortable. But there's some things there on the buffet table that, uh-uh, I don't like that. I don't care for that. I don't believe in that. And so they pick and choose, and they put together their own version, if you will, of Christianity or of Adventism. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. <clears throat> this is the conclusion of this series that has been stretched out because we've had some interruptions, but that's okay. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? And it's been a five-part series. Does the truth really matter? These are all online, and I've had Valen put the numbers there. Isn't loving Jesus enough? Third one we looked at, what makes you so special? What makes the devil angry? That was two weeks ago. And this morning, we're looking at what's wrong with being a cultural Adventist, a cultural Adventist. <clears throat> to help us answer that question, and, and even to define a little bit clearer what a cultural Adventist is, I'm going to get some help here from one of my friends, Clifford Goldstein. He writes for the Review often. Um, and in an article that he, the Review published back in 2005, he said this, a cultural Adventist is someone, by his own admission, is an Adventist solely because he was raised and educated in the church, but who, by his own admission, takes exception to many of the church's theological beliefs and religious practices. In other words, he's a Seventh-day Adventist not because of the church's teachings, but despite them, or in spite of them, or despite them. A cultural Adventist, the concept's incomprehensible to me. Why would anyone want to be an Adventist for the culture? Think about it. What makes a Seventh-day Adventist? It's not ethnicity. It's not nationality. It's not politics, not social economic status, not gender, nor age, nor language. There's only one thing that makes us Seventh-day Adventists, and that's our beliefs. 
We're who we are only because of what we believe, period. I mean, did anybody force you to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Do you feel like you're behind bars under all this? No, that was a choice that you made. But sometimes if I've been raised in the church, maybe that was a choice that was made for me, and maybe I never researched it for myself. And so I don't know where you are on the spectrum of things this morning. Maybe this is your first time to an Adventist church. I don't know. But wherever you are, I want to challenge you to search things out for yourself. Don't take anybody else's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take your neighbor's word for it. Don't take the pastor down the street. You study it out for yourself. Get rid of those beliefs, water them down, or push them to the sidelines, and we're left with nothing that justifies our corporate existence. He says, I'm an Adventist for one reason. The beliefs, the teachings, the doctrines that this church and this church alone espouses. And I hope you can say amen to that. Because if there's another church that follows and, and, and patterns more what you like to believe, then maybe you should be part of that denomination. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in a variety of things, all of which we feel like can be derived here from Scripture, right? And so we have made that choice to be Seventh-day Adventists. So, again, emphasizing this idea, do we study things out? for ourselves. I think oftentimes the rub comes when somebody comes along and tells me what I have to do. I mean, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? But there's no time taken to study it out and see, is that in fact true? Is that what the Bible says? Is this biblical? And if it is, and if I truly am surrendered to Jesus Christ, if he's the Lord and Savior of my life, I'm going to follow it. If it's not true, I'll throw it out. But do we take the time to study it out? Revelation 3.14 says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, that's the last church, there's no church after Laodicea, that's us. And it says, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is Jesus Christ. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, you don't really know what you believe. You haven't really studied it out. You're not really grounded in the truth. You're just kind of, well, you're just here. He says, I wish you were one or the other. Because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Strong language to the Laodicean church. We like to be on the fence, if you, if you may. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. I want to do the right thing, but don't take away any of my pet darling sins. Don't preach about those. Don't get on my case. There are certain things that are just, leave those alone. And we like it that way. We like the buffet. We like to pick and choose. Sometimes I see people in potluck, they're holding it up and smelling it. (laughs) No, I'll put that back. (laughs) Pick and choose in this buffet. And there's a lot of things that people like to pick and choose. It might be evolution or creation or a form of evolution that they weave in. It might be Sabbath observance and what they feel like is okay or not okay to do. Maybe homosexuality. 
It may be this transgender stuff. It may be jewelry stuff. It may be recreational drinking on the weekends. You know, just a little wine, good for your stomach. Yeah, I like that. Okay, going to the movies. Sure, that's not a problem for me. Remnant theology, yeah, I don't like to talk about that. I feel like that's abusive, yoga, whatever it is. And so we have all these things, the sanctuary, we just pick and choose. But I think, again, this is me, what do I know? I think the biggest one under attack is Ellen White. Why? I think it's because she speaks very plainly and clearly about all the above and a whole host of other things I didn't name or list. And so if I'm gonna keep one of those darling things, whatever it is, it really doesn't matter what it is, but if I keep it, I have a really hard time keeping Ellen White too because that contradicts one another. What do I do with that nagging wife that gets on my nerves? I kick her out of the house. (laughs) Then I don't have to listen to it anymore. It's the la 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 situation. And so this is the one I want to focus on today because I feel like even within the writings of Ellen White, we like to pick and choose. Here a little, there a little, I like this, I don't like that. Now granted, there's a whole realm of context that we need to be careful of. There's compilations that we need to be careful of because when you take all the statements on one issue and you pile them all together, you you don't have the context of who she was talking to and what the situation was, and that's very helpful for us to get those principles that are are vital in this thing, right? And so we have to be careful, we have to do our homework, we have to read what's ahead of it and behind it, and you know, everything she says on the topic, I get that. But we also need to be willing, at times when she makes these plain statements, that cut across something that I like and enjoy, I need to say, man, I need to really pray about this and think about this. Now, two Sabbaths ago, I talked about the proof of the fact that I believe she's a a Bible prophet, and there's various verses that we went through, tests of a prophet. You know, if they speak not against uh, the Bible, there's no light in them, and, and various things. But if, in fact, a individual passes all of these tests and we can't find anything they say that contradicts, then maybe, just maybe, they're sent of God and then maybe, just maybe, I should pay attention to what they have to say because it's not their words but God's words. Maybe, just maybe, like he sent a prophet right before every major event that was impending and he didn't leave it void with the second coming, he gave us a prophet to give us the present truth that we need to know. It doesn't contradict scripture, it goes in line with scripture, but maybe it kind of fleshes out and gives us some pertinent information for 2017. If an individual matches that, then maybe I should pay attention. Do we pick and choose from the Ellen White buffet? People often mistreat God's prophets, but is that anything new? Have you noticed how God's prophets are treated throughout Scripture? Let's look at this in Genesis 3, verse 14, talking about the first prophecy in Scripture. And I have this one on the screen. The next one we're going to have to look up. So if you don't have your Bibles out, you want to get those out. But in Genesis 3, verse 14, we read here, So the Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, you are cursed. This is after the first sin. She picked the fruit. She gave it to Adam and so on. So she's talking to the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. 
and I will put enmity, that's mutual hatred, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That verse right there, Genesis 3.15, is known as the first gospel promise that a Savior would come. First messianic prophecy. And so Eve hears this, she understands it, and so then in chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And the word for Cain means gotten or attained. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. You know, a stricter Hebrew translation simply takes from out, and it's I've acquired a man, the Lord. She thought this was Jesus Christ, if you will that she had attained, that this son would be the one that would change everything. Can you imagine if she only knew it wasn't going to be through Cain or her grandson or great-grandson or great-great-grandson? And so we fast forward in Genesis 25. The years go by fast in the book of Genesis. This is 2,000 years later. But you have this idea of a birthright. This birthright means God is going to send his promise through this lineage. And we trace it all the way down until we get to the Messiah. And so the birthright is a big deal. The birthright is prophecy. The birthright is a promise of God to his people to fulfill his covenant, his promise. And so we read here in Genesis 25, verse 29, Now Jacob cooked stew. The underlying theme today is food, I guess. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Big deal, the birthright. You're hungry? How about that birthright? And Esau said, look. I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Only interested in his current satisfaction. So he swore to him. Look at all these verbs in just a few verses. So he swore to him. He sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and he drank and he arose and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The promise of God he despised. The prophecy, if you will, that had been carried on, he despised. And I wonder if we as a Seventh-day Adventist church have been given something that we find in the book of Revelation that we've been talking about before. We'll look at it again. Commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, testimonies of the spirit of prophecy. We've been given this incredible birthright this gift of prophecy, but we despise it. We're embarrassed of it. We don't want to talk about it. We hide it under a bushel. Yet I showed you two weeks ago how people in the world are saying, this woman is phenomenal. Most checked out book in the Library of Congress on the life of Christ. The, the top read author and pastors under the age of 40 in this whole uh, North America, they're saying, this woman is one of our top four authors that we read. These are Baptist Methodists. I mean, this person's incredible. We know, rah, 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 rah. Why? Because we despise the birthright. 
Esau sought the gratification of his sensual desires over spiritual blessings. My friends, if you've read, and if you haven't, you just have to reserve judgment. You have to put it up on the shelf if you haven't read the writings of Ellen White. But if you have, you know the blessing that they are. They've been such a tremendous blessing to me and my family. How to raise kids, how to eat, how to do all these things. They're such a blessing. But we despise the gift. We don't want to hear it. I showed you two weeks ago some statistics about people that read Ellen White regularly. They have a a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. They're more assured of their salvation. They're out in the community more, doing community service and all those types of activities. Yeah, and they read their Bible not less, but more. And I found that in my own situation. When I read Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, great controversy. It puts me back in my Bible and I say, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. This makes sense. This all fits together so well. So I don't read my Bible less. I read it more. True prophet. But we despise the gift. Was willing to forfeit the promise of God for a bowl of lentils. For popularity in the world. To be considered mainstream when it's an incredible gift. Have you ever given a gift to somebody at Christmas time and they despise the gift? That's about the biggest insult you can have right there. Esau despises birthright. A Seventh-day Adventist, do we despise our birthright? Do we despise the gift of prophecy? Do we despise the prophet? Make her out to be something she's not. 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That's the reason God sends prophets. It's always been the reason because he's being compassionate and loving and wants us to understand. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets. Sounds like that parable of the, the, the vineyard dresser or whatever, the, the wine dresser, and he, he sets it all up and he goes away, and when it's time for fruit, he sends back his servants. And what do they do to the servants? Kill them, stone them, all kinds of things, until finally he sends his son. And what do they do to his son? Kill him. We mock, we despise, we scoff at the prophets. As Seventh-day Adventists, do we despise our birthright? Here's another one, Exodus 17, 1 and 2. There was no water for the people to drink. This is the children of Israel. So they quarreled with Moses. And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. That's what we do to the prophets, we stone them. They don't do what we like. Again in Numbers 14, 10. Second time, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Talking about Moses and Aaron. We don't like these guys. There's another time with Korah, Nathan, and Abiram. There's 250 elders. They're all coming to overpower God's prophet, God's messengers. And what happens in that story? The ground opens up and takes them down, eats them alive, if you will. And then they say, Moses, you're the one that did that. Incredible. Here's another one, Jeremiah 11, 21 and 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathon, 
who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. You just stop talking. I don't want to hear any more prophecy, or else we will kill you. We will cut you off at the knees and worse. Stop talking. Wow. As Seventh-day Adventists, do we despise our birthright? Another one, 2 Chronicles 24, 20 and 21. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, who stood above the people and said to them, thus says God. He doesn't say, thus says me. He says, thus says God. Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? The commandments are this hedge of protection because God loves us. Not because he doesn't want us to have any fun. Is it truly fun to have somebody take your wife and to murder your kids and and to steal from you and all these other things and have all these? No, that's not fun. That's the road to destruction. Why are you transgressing the commandments of the Lord so you cannot prosper? So they conspired against him at the command of the king and they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. This is incredible. Before he even gets out of the sanctuary, out of the fence, they stone him. Prophet of God. And Jesus makes mention of this. Matthew 23, therefore, You are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them will kill, you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of, yes, Zechariah. And then the next verse, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Well, here's the one I'm, I'm looking for. And J- Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. I imagine Jesus is weeping, perhaps, when he says this verse. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her as a warning, as a wake-up call, because I love them, but you stone them. You turn them away. You won't listen. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You've seen this phenomenon, right? You don't even know that there's any babies and all of a sudden the chick gets up and here's all the little ones that follow behind. He says, I want to guard you that way. Off the lips of Jesus, but it says, but you were not willing. Do we despise our birthright? Even in Acts 7.52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, and of whom now have become the betrayers and murderers. I think if the people in Jesus' time would have listened to the prophets, would they have killed Jesus? But they wouldn't listen. And so we've seen this verse before. We saw it two weeks ago when the dragon was enraged. That's the devil. He's enraged with the woman, the church, And he went to make war with the rest of our offspring, or the remnant, if you will, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's angry because of the Ten Commandments. He's angry because of this testimony of Jesus Christ. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. They have an inside view, if you will, of what's coming down the pike, but they don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. God has entrusted the remnant church I believe, with the gift of prophecy. And you say, well, is that the only verse? No, there's other places. There are many other places. I'll show you another one. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. I thank my God always. This is Paul writing. 
I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him. Who's the one behind it? God. That you were enriched by, in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, the NIV says testimony about Jesus, but that's not a correct translation. It's the testimony of Jesus, and we can tell that as we keep reading, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. So here's a group of people that are waiting for the second coming of Jesus that fall short in no gift. And what are the gifts? Madeline read them to us, Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore, he said, when he was ascending on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. It's there in the list. And here's a group of people awaiting the second coming of Jesus that fall short in no gift. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's to build up. The gift of prophecy was to build up, not to tear down. But too often we despise the gift. Jesus gave these gifts to the church to strengthen it, to accomplish its mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. Sometimes I wonder if we are still here because we're trying everybody else's methods out there of how to do evangelism rather than picking up and reading the book Evangelism. Oh, that's old stuff. Friends, God's older than anybody. But when he says something, I want to pay attention because he's God. And so the church that has the gift of prophecy and is waiting for the second coming of Jesus has a great responsibility. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, it's because you believe that, at least it should be. So is the gift of prophecy just bonus material? This is how a lot of people think of it. Oh, it's just bonus material. You can take it or leave it. It's like a buffet. Was she inspired? Eh, sort of. Can you be sort of inspired? You either are or you're not. It's one or the other. A good tree only produces good fruit. A bad tree only produces bad fruit. And if she is, in fact, bad fruit, then this whole denomination needs to wake up and throw her out unitedly. But if it's good fruit... We better pay attention. So is the gift of prophecy authoritative? Does it have authority in my life? Well, let's look at another uh, picture of Scripture here in Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to put it on the screen, so you're going to have to look there. Acts chapter 15. Is the spirit of prophecy authoritative? Meaning, does it have any weight to it? Now, we're not talking about contradicting Scripture. If there's a contradiction, Scripture is certainly above the Bible, but if there is no contradiction, if there's no contradiction, then we need to pay attention to the source of the prophetic gift. Acts chapter 15, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the issue. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. You have to become Jewish. You can't be Gentile. And they argue and they dispute. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, 
they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Notice it doesn't say they decide to split off and start their own church. They say, let's get together. Let's have a GC session. Let's study this out. Let's see what is truth on this matter and settle it once and for all. And so, skipping down to verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Commentators all over the place agree that what Peter is referring to here is his vision or the vision given to him in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember that vision of the, the white sheet and all of these unclean animals that descends? has nothing to do with what you can eat or not eat. Right? Let's read it. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said... Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And so going back here, we have all kinds of discussion. People are coming up with, with uh, scriptural discussion. They're coming to different conclusions. And then Peter stands up and says, I was shown in vision. And then we keep going on. So God, who knows his heart, uh, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Then in verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So they're studying scripture. They're coming to different conclusions. Peter stands up and says, I was shown. And then here, Barnabas and Paul stand up and say, this is confirmed by our own experience and what we've witnessed. And then James, the one who's overseen this whole thing, decides to speak up. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon or Simon Peter has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets, did you catch that? The words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And then he quotes scripture from Amos. 9, 11, and 12. And at the end of, uh, well, here it's 16 and 17 in Acts. And in 17 it says, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Here in Acts 15, we have doctrinal confusion. Peter says, I was shown in vision. Step three, Paul and Barnabas confirm it with their own experience. Step four, James says, Scripture agrees with the vision and makes his conclusion. Now stop and think. Because everybody says, oh, it's the Bible, it's only the Bible, and so on. I get that. But you know, you have people, you have prophets that are speaking before their words become part of the Bible. Does that make sense? I mean, stop and think about that. 
Is the gift of prophecy authoritative? I would say, yes, it is. Are you saying it's equal with scripture? No, scripture comes first, but if it agrees with scripture, if it's not contradicting scripture, then I need to listen to what it says and how that impacts the word. Does that make sense? If there's ever a contradiction, you go with the Bible because there is no light in them. That's one of the tests of a prophet, so automatically they're out. But if it agrees, I pay attention. You test it by the scripture, but if it passes the test, then it's of God, right? And I need to listen. And if it's of God, I need to pay attention to what it says. So is it authoritative? Well, sort of, that doesn't work. It either is or it isn't. It's one or the other. Well, this statement's authoritative and that statement's not. Huh? Let's go back. When God gave the gift of prophecy to Jeremiah, did it impact their understanding of the word? Yes, it did. When God gave the gift of prophecy to Daniel, did it impact the understanding of the word? Yes, it did. When God gave the gift of prophecy to Isaiah, did it impact their understanding of the word? Yes, it did. When God gave it to John the Baptist, the gift of prophecy, did it impact their understanding of the word of God and the fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Yes, it did. When God gave the gift of prophecy to Peter, as we just read about here, did it impact their understanding and how to move forward as a church? Yes, it did. And when God gave the gift of prophecy to Paul, again, same thing, it impacts how we read God's word. Were you trying to put the gift of prophecy above scripture? No, I'm not. I'm doing what scripture tells us to do. Test it by the word. Not just a little bit, big time test it. But if it passes the test, then I need to listen to what God's trying to say to his people. And so here you have Ellen White. If she agrees with scripture, doesn't contradict it, should I listen to what she has to say? In light of scripture, I should. Okay, I'm gonna step on her toes a little bit. Are you ready? I'm not trying to pick on anything or anybody, okay? Because I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive, I could find things in the writing of Ellen White that would make all of us, any one of us, say, ooh. Right? And my intention here today is not to make you feel like a a terrible, lousy person or anything else. My intention is to show you that what she has given is for our best, best good, right? For our betterment to be closer to Jesus, to be, to be grounded in God's word and all of these things. And the real issue is how I deal with that when I come across it in my reading. If I look at that and I say, Lord, I'm not there yet. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. God says, I can work with that. But if I read it and I bristle, why? I can't believe. What does that say about my heart? Don't you cross me on something that I like to do. What does that say about surrender? And God says, it's just for your best good. I've had enough. Slam the door. And you know what? This Ellen White book, out the window. That can be the response. And so I promise you, if you go looking in the writings of Ellen White, you'll find something, you'll say, Pastor Wright, you need to work on this. And I pray by God's grace, I'll be able to say, yeah, you're right, I do. Now can I find something? No, okay. <clears throat> so here we go, tea and coffee. 
as well as tobacco, have an injurious effect upon the system. What? Can't believe she'd say that. Coffee has a greater tendency to cloud the intelligent and benumb the energies. Please. That is so lame. Are you kidding me? I'm falling asleep. I need a cup right now. Now, you really have to fasten your seatbelts. Tea and coffee drinking is a sin. An injurious indulgence, which, like other evils, injures the soul, meaning my relationship with God. She's judging me. No, she's saying this is serious. Take it seriously. But we get all bent out of shape when she says it. We don't like it. And this is just an example. You could pull other things, too. But we get bent out of shape. We don't like it. Steps on my toes. This is offensive to me. But somehow we'll take it from ABC News when they say, what's the buzz? And we say, oh, this is interesting. Let me listen. And this lady, she goes in for an MRI, two MRIs, actually. The first one without coffee. The second one, she has one glass. Well, that's not a glass. It was a cup. One cup of coffee. Downs it. Goes back in for a second MRI. No change, right? In fact, it's better. She's more alert. Give me an MRI. Is that what it, no. So this is the brain before caffeine. There's all the blood there. All the, the red is a good thing. That's blood flow. This is after. Do you see a difference? Before, after, before, after. If not, you need to get your eyes checked a little bit. <laughs> after just one cup of coffee, there was a 40% drop in blood flow to the brain. Is that significant? 40% drop? Huh. That's interesting. Thank you, ABC. What do you think about the spirit project? Ah, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> One cup. Increased risk of stomach, kidney, lung, rectal, and esophageal cancer. You just don't want me to have any fun. I really wanted rectal cancer. <laughs> Doubles bladder cancer risk in women. Two cups of coffee a day. 250 increase in colon cancer and risk. Doubles fatal bladder cancer. Increases ovarian and pancreatic cancer. There's a greater list than this, but there's a lot of things I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to put you through it. <laughs> Here's the orb spider study that Loma Linda did. I, I just learned about this one this week. So they got an orb spider, and this is what the web looks like. Isn't that nice? I think that's nice. That's a work of art. That would probably take me a little while. Um, and they injected very carefully the equivalent, that's a key word here, equivalent of two cups of coffee. So did they pump two cups? No, it wouldn't fit in this tiny spider. I, I get that. But the equivalent in terms of the weight of this little guy, okay, here's your two cups of caffeine. Here's your spike. Wait till you see this web. This is phenomenal. Oh, Well, I was, I was all excited, but I wasn't able to really think clearly because 40% of my, my brain, let's just put this here. <laughs> this is after 48 hours. I'm not a math major, but I'm pretty sure that's two days. This is after 96 hours, finally. Gets to put the web back together. Well, Pastor Wright, I'm not a spider. <laughs> no, you're not. but you'll never make a web if you're drinking caffeine. <laughs> but this is where we are in this country. I mean, just to look at that, somebody's saying, oh. 
And can I tell you about something that really bothers me? When pastors come up with their cup and they put it right here and then they preach and they do whatever and they sip. Now, I, I don't know what's in their heart and so it's not my place to judge us between them and God. I don't know where they are. So I'm just going to leave that alone. But part of me thinks, is this some kind of a rebellion saying Ellen White has no authority over me? Here's the cup. I don't know. Cut back to just one cup of coffee a day. <laughs> yeah, that's where we are. Of course, we have it in all kinds of sodas, but then you have all these monster sodas and jolt and all this stuff that's got extra push. And now it's in food. It's in pancakes I saw this week. It's in maple syrup. It's in all these products. Five-hour energy. You've seen that at the gas station and, and gum and, and you name it. Turkey jerky with caffeine. Okay. Have you heard of surge sticks? It's like smoking, but there's no smoke. It's like a vaporizer. You crack the thing and it goes... And then all this chemical stuff goes together. I'm sure it's all natural and organic. And then you put it in your mouth. And you have to wait because the temperature changes and a few of these things come together. But don't worry. This is, this is good for you. And then you... And you get a caffeine hit. Here's another thing that they have now. Aero shots or this uh, buzz air. I mean, I don't have time for a cup of coffee. I just need a... This is pathetic. And you can look at the science research, and Ellen White makes the same statement as well. You get this little spike, but then you go lower. And then you get this spike, and you go lower. And then you get a spike, and you go lower. Not to mention the 40% loss of brain, all that kind of... Loss of brain, close enough, blood in the brain. And you get down here low enough that you're waking up in the morning, drinking a cup or two of coffee, just to try and get back up to feeling terrible. And then you're trying to, to study your Bible feeling terrible. I mean, it, it blocks the receptors in the brain. If you study this out, it blocks those receptors, and it's supposed to, something's supposed to come and lodge there and say you're tired. But it blocks those, and so it has to create more and does all this other stuff, and your body tries to throw in adrenaline and all this stuff. What you're doing is your body's trying to say, I'm tired, and you're saying, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. Keep going, keep going, keep going. There's a tiger after you. And people are living day in and day out with a tiger behind them. God didn't design us to live this way. And so he tells us in love and compassion through his prophet. But no, let's, let's stone the prophet. This is legalism. Is it? We've got it backwards. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. I also count all things loss. Even Starbucks. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I want my brain to be clear so that the Holy Spirit can whisper and I'll hear it. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Pastor preached today, it's all about coffee. No, I didn't. It's all about him. And because I want my mind to be clear for him, and because he's asked me to do something, I'm going to surrender to him. It's all about him. You've missed it. It's not about coffee. Amos 3, 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophet. I believe God sent Ellen White for this time, for this day, for this age to prepare us. She probably could see down the pike. It wasn't so much her as God showing, saying, look, this is going to be an issue. Did you know caffeine is the number one abused drug in the world? 
People are taking hits on this stuff all the time. But again, it's not about caffeine. It's about all kinds of stuff she tells us. That's for our good. That's for the good of the church. That's for the good of my kids. That's for the good of me understanding scripture and to spend more time in his word. Last day events 180 says, the shaking of God blows away multitudes like dry leaves. Soon God's people will be tested by fiery trials and the great proportion of those who now appear to be genuine and true will prove to be base metal. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the three angels' message. Maybe they were born into it. Maybe they went to Adventist schools. Maybe they've, you know, gone on occasion to the Adventist church. They have Adventist friends. They might even say happy Sabbath. They profess it, but they haven't really searched it out. There's never been that transfer between their parents and, no, now this is mine. And so they profess it, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. And they abandon their positions and join the ranks of the opposition. The good news is there's people out there that will take their place. She tells us that too. But I don't want anybody here in Hendersonville to be part of that number. I don't want to be part of that number. I don't want to be base metal. Second Chronicles 20, 20. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Well, it sure sounded to me like he was saying that if you don't believe in Ellen White, you're not going to be saved. I didn't say that. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the, alone is the only way that you can be saved. But it's this same Jesus Christ that says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Seventh Avenue Church, oh, David, oh, David, how can I give you up? I want to gather you like a, a, a chicken gathers her chicks. And I've sent you this precious gift to help point you back to me over and over and over again. Don't push it aside. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Jesus wants us all to be there. He doesn't want anyone to be missing. He's done anything and everything he can to help us in this journey. So we're not surprised. So we can be faithful to him when every wind of doctrine is blowing. So let's wrap this up. Why am I Seventh-day Adventist? Because truth matters. Because our message is a safeguard to end-time deceptions. Our doctrines are safeguards. What we believe happens to you when you die in the Sabbath. They're safeguards. Because God has called the remnant church to preach the three angels' messages to the world. It's there. Revelation 14. God has called us to do that. Because God's word says the last day church will have the gift of prophecy. If we don't have that, we might as well just start over. We're still waiting. And lastly, because I've searched it out for myself. You can't ride the coattails of anybody. And maybe you're mad at me right now. Well, you know, don't take my word for it. What do I know? I'm wearing a goofy bow tie and I can't even grow facial hair. <laughs> this is three and a half months of growth. Don't take my word for it. Study it out. You owe it to yourself. Isaiah 25, 9, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Aren't you looking forward to that day? 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that train. I want to go to heaven. I want to honor my father in heaven. And the invitation in John 14, verse 2, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Last verse, Matthew 25, 34. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for these wonderful hymns, these songs that remind us of that glorious day when you will come to take us home. Lord, may nothing stand in the way between our soul and our Savior. May we be willing to surrender anything that needs to be surrendered, that you may have full and complete place in our lives, that we may be part of that resurrection morning. And may that circle be unbroken on that day, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.